We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm B. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Good day to you, Key. Good day to you, V. Happy 21st episode. Mm. We're legal. Yay. Finally legal. For our 21st endeavor, hmm, I was thinking we should do something proper. Oh, we should have talked about bootleggers because of liquor. Oh, we missed it. We oh, did. We oh. Well, well, hindsight is twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. But what are we talking about today? We are talking about art forgery. Mm, classy. Yeah, like just imagine you painstakingly made something incredible, and then hundreds of years later some bozo makes a copy of it and tells people it's the real thing and sells it for a huge profit. Just just imagine. Damn that bozo, first of all. Mm. And hopefully I could come back from the dead and haunt them for using my talent and skills to dupe someone out of money so many years later. There's an episode of Supernatural where a painting was killing someone. <laughs> Wow. That sounds kind of like that movie Oculus. Did you see that? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, but that was like a mirror. Yeah. That was when, making people crazy and killing people. <laughs> when that when that guy pulled the pulled the staple out of his nail or pulled his nail off of the staple mover, that's it just it just made my it took my breath away pretty much because it's such a disgusting painful thing to look at. No, I like the thing I remember most from that movie, like was um, the light bulbs were on the counter and the mirror was like making them look like apples and the girl picked one up and bit into it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And Mm. I was like, okay, y'all rigged all this stuff up to break the mirror. Why not just go ahead and use it? Just as soon as it's rigged, set it off. And but anyway, I don't I don't remember the full plot of why it took them so long to try to break it. So yeah, well, let's yeah, move yeah. on. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. So who's going first this week? I think I should. Okay, I think we should start flipping a coin. Flipping a coin. Yeah. Like, you know, we should flip a coin before we start to decide who goes first. Heads I win, tails you lose. (laughs) Okay, that sounds fair. Cool, cool. (laughs) We'll do that next time. Okay. All right. So, gather around, children. It's time for a telecrime. All right. So we're going to go to 1989 South Torton, United Kingdom. And we're going to go to the Greenhalls estate, their household little thing. So, Sean Greenhall's family was involved in the Garden Shed Gang. They established an elaborate Hang cottage. Hang on. The Garden Shed Gang. <laughs> hey, come on. That sounds like the. the... <laughs> The most non-aggressive gang in the world. Like, they threaten to fix your garden for you. <laughs> you better straighten up, or we're going to plant these peas over here. <laughs> Don't worry. Okay. You, you dare mock the garden shed gang? Are you serious, Key? Do you know how fast they'll take us down? I'm just saying. It, they could have picked a, a better name than the garden shed gang. <laughs> I'm just something a little more mean and aggressive, something to really get their point across to make it seem like threatening. Like this the <laughs> garden shed gang doesn't sound threatening at all. You could have you can have chainsaws in the garden shed. That's pretty threatening. Okay, but you also have to 
crank a, a garden shed and makes or a, a chainsaw and it makes a lot of noise. By the time you do all that, the person's ran away. That's true. That's true. So as I was saying, <clears throat> they established an elaborate cottage industry at his parents' house in the Crescent Bromley Cross, South Turton, which is about three and a half miles or six kilometers north of Bolson Town Center. His parents, George Sr. and Olive, approached clients while his older brother, George Jr., managed the money. Sean Greenhall left school at 16 years old with no qualifications. A self-taught artist influenced by his job as an antique dealer, he worked off his forgeries from sketches, photographs, art books, and catalogs. He attempted a wide range of crafts, from painting and pastels, watercolors, to sketches and sculptures, both modern and ancient, busts and statues, bas relief, and metalwork. He invested in a wide range of different materials, silver, stone, marble, rare stone, replica metal, and glass. He also did meticulous research to authenticate his items with histories and provenance, such as faking letters from the supposed artists, in order to demonstrate his ownership. Completed items were then stored, uh, stored around the house and the garden shed. The garden shed served as a workshop as well. Other members of the family were invoked to help establish the legitimacy of various items. These included his great-grandfather, who had quote-unquote owned an art gallery and had a strong affinity and foresight to buy well at auctions, and an ancestor who had apparently worked for the mayor of Bolton as a cleaner and was given a Thomas Moran painting. Now, if, now if you're a custodian person... You're working really hard, but do you think they'll reward you with a super expensive painting for your services? No. Yeah, that's um very far-fetched indeed, but it was just one of the shams they kept up with just to make it seem legit. <laughs> but there's much more to them getting their quote-unquote ancestors involved, too. So, um, after, after the process of for, forging and selling all of the very expensive pieces, um, soon an investigation was led by the Scotland Yard. And so a detective came out to the house, and he was amazed by what he saw. He quoted this. There were blocks of stone, a furnace for melting silver on top of the fridge, half-finished and rejected sculptures, a watercolor under the bed, a check for 20,000 pounds dated 1993, and a bust of an American president in the loft. I'd never seen anything like it. Yeah, that does seem like a random menagerie of things, but I guess it's all art, so it kind of makes sense, but I can understand. <laughs> like, I'd be confused, too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's like he was jumping around from project to project. Right. A next-door neighbor recalled... I was finding bits of pottery and coins around the edges of the garden over 20 years back. Things like bits of metals with old kings on it. While this sounds as though materials were openly displayed, it was perhaps not quite that obvious. Angela Thomas, a curator from the Bolton Museum, actually visited the family at home prior to the purchase of the Amarna Princess and reported nothing untoward. Sean's mummy may have been a peripheral figure, but Sean's daddy was way more involved. He was the front man who met face-to-face -face with potential buyers. He looks honest, he's elderly, and he shows up in a wheelchair. On one occasion, trying to interest the Boston Museum and the Amarna Princess, an ancient st Egyptian statuette about the size of a gnome, George Sr. told them that he was thinking about using it as a garden ornament. The parents were perhaps most important because they helped establish a logical explanation for why the Greenhalls had possession of such items in the first place, namely as family heirlooms. It allowed them to offload items when they were discovered as fakes, such as the Enrid Relicary and a L.S. Laurie painting, The Meeting House. Yet for all of his daring, 
he once boasted that he could knock up a Thomas Moran watercolor in about half an hour and claimed to have completed the Minor Princess in three weeks. Sean, Sean Greenhall needed the help from his parents. At, at the trial, it was said by a lawyer, Brian, Brian McKenna, that his mother made the phone calls because he was shy and did not like to use the telephone. Oh, come on now. Come on now. <laughs> I mean, Sean, Sean's a shy boy, you know? You can't be perpetrating fraud and be like, no, I can't call him shy. <laughs> <laughs> Pits a blanket over his face. Right. So... I have a I have a list of forty four forgeries that were that were found out from them. Forty four. That is an insane number. Yeah. But let me just tell you real quick of how they were caught. And that's just what was found out, right? Like who knows if there's others floating around. Right, yeah, yeah, because like a lot of things were privately sold too. So this is how they were caught. In light of the fact that they had so successfully duped the experts, the Greenhalls tried again using the same Silver, Silverton Park Providence. They produced what were purportedly three Assyrian relief of soldiers and horses from the palace of Senna Kebrib and 600 BC. The British Museum examined them in November 2005, concluded that they were genuine and expressed an interest of buying one of them, which seemed to match a drawing by H.A.H. Lyard and its collection. However, when two of the reliefs were submitted to Bonnet's auction house, its antiquities consultant Richard Faulkner spotted an obvious fake. Bonis, well, I'm not surprised. He was whipping them out in 30 minutes. Yeah, for real. <laughs> <laughs> Bohens consulted with the British Museum about various suspicious aspects, and the museum then spotted several unlikely anomalies. The horses' reins were not consistent or atypical with respect to other Assyrian reliefs. The culling uniform ins inscription contained a spelling mistake, mm. an ab <laughs> absent diacritical mark, which was considered extremely unlikely in a piece destined for the eyes of the king. These concerns became full-blown suspicion when George seemed too willing to part with the items at a low price. The museum contacted the Arts and Antiquities Unit of the Scotland Yard, and 18 months later, the family was arrested. Dang. A spelling mistake, though? Come on. Right. Come on. But, but it, it, is, like, it is in a different language. But if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna try to cheat something, you gotta cheat it to the T. Right. Know what you know what your thing like you have to be so immersed in it. You can't just say, Okay, I'm gonna pick a language and write a word and hope it's right. No, you take it to people who speak that language and be like, How do you spell this? Then you double check them, ask somebody else, like, hey, how do you spell this? That's what I did when I got my tattoo. My friend is Korean, my best friend. She wrote my name. And, okay, after I got the tattoo, I asked, like, two people, her mama and the Korean shop owner of the store I used to go to, like, what did it really say? <laughs> Which, in retrospect, I should have did that first. But it was in the heat of the but, moment, and it, it says my name, so I'm cool. Yeah, yeah. She's trustworthy. Yeah. But that's the thing. I wouldn't just willy-nilly try to pick Korean symbols out and know and think I know what it really says. Yeah, exactly. So, had the Greenhalls managed to sell all 120 artworks, they had offered it as estimated they have earned as much as 10 million pounds. Not too shabby. Not at all. This would have made the average value of each piece more than 83,000 pounds, although money received varied between 100 pounds and 440,000 pounds, which they sold the Amaran Princess at. Dang. 
the green halls did not manage to offload most of their works. Many which they did sell purportedly were undersold, garnering only minimum amounts. Others, such as the Laurie painting, the Meeting House, only gained in value from repeated resales, which, you know, wouldn't benefit the green halls. I think that's pretty crazy, too, because, like, um, whoever bought the Meeting House bought it at one price, and then they sold it for an even higher price after that. <laughs> it's so crazy. Right, like, but, you know, it's like, if they were so willing to give it cheap because they knew it was a fake, then, yeah, I can see how the other person was like, ooh, I can get a profit off of this because I didn't pay but 100,000 pounds for it. Let me sell it for 200,000 pounds. Yeah, yeah. As time went on, more ambitious, expensive pieces of work were produced, some of which did not sell. However, these were subject to more scrutiny, and indeed it was one of these, Assyrian reliefs, which led to the exposure and arrests which suggests that the longevity of their scheme was concentrated on passing off lower-level items. Yeah, because, I mean, like, we, cause like it, it's just like with um, with fake money. If you have a fake $100 bill, you're going to get fined out more if you have than if you have a, a fake $1 bill. No one checks $1 bills, but they're going to always check a $100 bill. Right. You were, you were so right. I remember a few years ago... Well, more than a few years ago, it's been like a while. I was working at um, Big Lots, and we had to check like tens and fives because someone around the Greenville area was like floating fake tens and fives. And I was like, okay, but that's smart because who else checks it? Like it wasn't until we got one at the store that we started checking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm like, you know, that's smart. Like, yeah, don't come in here with 20s and 50s and 100s. Come in here with a whole bunch of ones and fives and just say you work at a strip club. In addition, the make records of the Green Halls only went back six years. So in the final analysts, the exact amount of money involved over the 17-year scam has not been determined. What is known is that two Halflix accounts, one containing 55,173 pounds and the other 303,646 pounds were frozen pending a confiscation hearing in January 2008. And Sean Greenhall was convicted for conspiracy to conceal and transfer 410,392 pounds. How long do you think he was sentenced to prison? Since it's an art crime and it's not very violent, I'm going to say three years. Okay, that's a little generous. He got four years and eight months. I'm not surprised. Yeah, that's not not too major, major, huge. No, no. The Amarna Princess, which was like you know the most ambitious project, it's it's so it's so extraordinary because like this, of course, you know would have been an Egyptian relic. Mm-hmm. But what Sean did is that he went to B and Q, which is a United Kingdom do-it-yourself and home improvement store. And he, he just bought random materials for it. <laughs> like, like, he bought random materials and then coated it with a mixture of tea and clay to make it look old. Wow. Like, like this guy was really crafty and really smart. I think uh, to be an art forger, you have to be. Yeah, yeah. Especially if you want to make that, make, make that bank. Yeah. So, um, so that was sold in 2003, and it was sold for 439,767 pounds, and it remained on display until February 2006, and then it got redisplayed in September 2018 as part of the Bolton Museum's Bolton Egypt Gallery as an example of fake Egyptian artifacts in the Obsessions section. They got it back on him. Like, it's going to be forever in their museum, but as an obsessive knockoff. Hmm. I mean, I guess that's one way to still recoup money. Because what does destroying it do? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't do anything. But yeah, that was Sean Greenhall and the Garden Shed Gang. I'm sorry I didn't tell you any more details about the Garden Shed Gang. But for them being such a notorious outfit, it was kind of hard to find info on them. Yeah, I, I, 
you know, if someone had threatened me with planting a garden, I wouldn't be too, you know, liable to speak up about it. I, I'd be shamed and keep my mouth shut. You're planting your garden, but what they plant you will grow back and die and grow back and die continuously in a cycle. Yeah, yeah like you'll never produce any really good crops from it. It's just going to be like the worst garden in the world. Yep, yep. Yeah, so, you know. But that was good, though. Like, I am surprised that that was, you know, like they didn't have records and stuff like that of what, but I guess it's it's hard to keep track of once you sell something. If you don't keep track of who you sold it to, then I guess it is kind of hard to, um, like, track it down, per se. Yeah, right, right. I can see that being hard. Yeah, but that's interesting, though. Like, I liked this topic because my story was interesting, too. I'm certainly ready for it. Well, all right. Let's see. Now, John Mayett, or Mayotte, because they're British, so I might be pronouncing that wrong. And John Drew perpetrated what has been described as the biggest art fraud of the 20th century. John Mayett was born in 1945. The son of a farmer, Mayett attended art school and discovered a talent for mimicking other artist styles and painted for amusement and for friends. Now, he worked as a songwriter for a time and claims authorship of the song Silly Games, a UK number two hit for Janet Kay in 1979. Although this is attributed by Kay to producer Dennis Boville and credited to Diana Boville. But in multiple sources, I saw him get credited for it. So I don't know if he was like a ghostwriter, but... Seems like he may have really had something to do with it. Now, around uh, 1986, Myatt discovered that he could paint like the masters. And for the next nine years, he led a secret and stunningly successful professional life as a painter. He faked painting styles with such virtuosity that his paintings passed for the real thing. Now, John Drew was born John Crockett in 1948 and grew up in a lower middle-class home in Sussex, Southeast England. Even as a child, he made up stories about himself, bragging to friends that he was a direct descendant of the Earl of York and the son of the founder of the British Home Stores. Oh, British Homes. British Homes. We have a little connection. Despite a reported IQ of 165, he was an average student. Daniel Stokes, a friend from those days whose life was to intersect with Drew some 35 years later, remembers Drew as an abnormally organized child who kept an enormous library of books and clipping files, as though he were accumulating written information for some later purpose. His room, Stokes recalls, seemed like a laboratory, or, as the English say, a laboratory. Laboratory. At 17, Crockett dropped out of high school and changed his name to Drew. For the next 15 years, he slipped out of official sight. He worked briefly in a low administrative post at the Atomic Energy Authority, but after that, the British government has no record of him paying taxes, being met, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> after that, the British government has no record of him paying taxes, being arrested, or seeking medical treatment. His official employment record is blank. But in 1980, Drew met wealthy Israeli expatriate Batsheva Goldsmith and soon moved into her house, having charmed her with claims that he was an advisor to the Atomic Energy Authority, 
a British Aerospace Board member, and worked for the Ministry of Defense. So he was laying it on pretty thick there. Oh, absolutely. Jeez. Mm-hmm. Now, Drew and Myatt met in 1985. When Myatt's l- wife left him in 1985, he gave up teaching to spend more time with his children and attempted to make a living by painting original works in the style of well-known artists. He placed an advertisement in Private Eye magazine, which read Genuine Fakes, 19th and 20th Century Paintings from 150 Pounds. He was initially honest about the nature of his paintings, but John Drew, a regular customer, had presented himself as a nuclear physicist who wanted art copies for his own home and hinted at links to British intelligence. A nuclear physicist? Really? It, like, it just gets more and more grandiose every time he tells his story. <laughs> this dude. Drew, however, was able to resell some of the paintings as genuine works by using mud and vacuum cleaner dust to age them. When he later told Mayat that Christie's had accepted his Albert Gleiser's painting as genuine and paid... 25,000 pounds, Mayat became a willing accomplice to Drew's fraud. And he began to paint more pictures in the styles of masters like Roger Bissier, Marc Chagall, Le Corbusier, Jean Dubuffet, Alberto Giacometti, Matisse, Ben Nicholson, and Nicholas Destel, and Graham Sutherland. Now, Drew did not try to sell paintings in a closed setting, like, you know, to family and friends and whatnot. He wanted money. So he created a background for him. He forged certificates of authenticity and even invoices of previous sales to establish false provenance and paper trails for the paintings. He wrote to relatives of the artists to fool them into authenticating the forgeries. He tricked a small Catholic religious order in a village to sign a contract which would verify some of the paintings. Now, he also forged documents about previous owners so that the paintings did not just suddenly seem to appear from nowhere. So he really thought this out. Yeah. He even went for, he even went for their religious ones. Right hoodwinking the Catholics. So, for this, he used records of dead people, some of them his old acquaintances. He convinced some of his living friends to sign documents as though they were previous owners of the paintings. Most of them were broke or otherwise in trouble and accepted the money that he offered him offered them to do it. To an old childhood friend, Daniel Stokes, he concocted a story about a drinking wife and needy children and convinced him to pretend to be the owner of a fake Ben Nicholson painting. Clive Bellman, another acquaintance, was told that the paintings were sold to provide money for purchases of archival materials from the Soviet Union about the Holocaust. This dude is an expert liar. He really is. Now, when he couldn't find anyone to bribe, he just invented non-existent people. <laughs> so he just didn't care. He was just, you know, oh, you, you don't want to sign it. You don't want to be. Okay. So Sam Jam owned this painting for six years, and it was passed down from his grandfather, Ma'am Jam. Like, <laughs> he just didn't care. So Sam Jam sounds pretty legit to me. Yeah, it does. I believe it. Now, in 1989, Drew gained access to the letter archives of the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London by claiming he was an interested collector. He also donated two paintings, Mayotte's forgeries, of course, for a fundraising auction. He let he later used the institute stationery in his fake documents. The Tate Gallery 
received a donation of two Roger Bessier paintings, but Bessier's son did not accept them. Good on him. He was probably like, eh, I, I think I know my dad's paintings, and I don't, I don't think these are it. Yeah, like, I, like he was really trying to see how far he could go for that one. Yeah, like he's well, he's probably like, mm, I don't remember those two. Let's not take them. So Drew withdrew the paintings, but he made a donation of twenty thousand pounds, which is about thirty-two thousand U.S. dollars, to the gallery. So the gallery opened its archives to him. And, you know, I guess that made him seem more genuine, like, oh, he does, you know, okay, well, just give him back, but I'm going to make a donation instead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're on the good side like that. Right. So instead of the paintings being donated to make money, he donated actual money to ingratiate himself to them. He Now, he was smart. I'm, I'm going to give him that. He was smart. Let's see. Now, to be accepted by the Victoria and Albert Museum, he needed a false reference. He provided one himself. Well, I guess he needed a reference, and so he provided a false one. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I mean, well, he, he was connected to British intelligence and an uh, aerospace engineer and all these other things that he's been telling people an atomic energy advisor. He worked for the ministry of defense. I mean, Hey, why not just go ahead and give yourself a reference? Yeah. Why not? Now drew used that opportunity to introduce false records into the archives. See, he is like really playing the long game here. So he made all these false records, ingratiated himself with all these places and then put his false records in the archives oh he was he was Mm -hmm. uh, he was like the ultimate con man yeah for real this is crazy he replaced old pages and inserted numerous new ones into old art catalogs to include mayotte's forgeries the institutions have said that it will take years to purge the archives of all the false information through a middleman, Drew also created a company called Art Research Associates and again used himself as a reference. Now, in 1995, Drew left Guzman to marry Helen Sussman, a doctor. Now, this is where he made the mistake. Maybe this was not the most um, amicable divorce. Because Guzman studied papers that Drew had left behind and found a number of incriminating letters. So, you know what she did? What? She decided to tell the police and the Tate Gallery. Nope. Nope. <laughs> the wrong one. Mess with the right. wrong one. He messed with the wrong one there. Or, if you're going to be a ass to somebody take all your paperwork with you how about that yeah yeah honestly <laughs> don't, don't leave a paper trail where they could find it and turn you in, turn you into the police so in september 1995 mayotte was arrested by scotland yard detectives he quickly confessed stating that he had created the paintings using emulsion paint developed in the mid-60s and da 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 ky jelly a mixture that dried quickly, but was hardly reminiscent of the original pigments. But it was good enough to pass, though. <laughs> so, he estimated that he earned between 165000 to 275000 pounds and offered to return the 30,000 pounds he still had and help convict Drew. He had come to dislike the deception and to dislike Drew. According to Mayotte, he painted about 200 forgeries in a regular schedule, about one every six weeks, and delivered them to Drew in London. Seven months later, on April 6, 1996, after recording conversations between the partners, detectives raided Drew's home in the Tony London suburb of Rygate where they found hundreds of documents 
from the Victoria and Albert Museum, the Tate Gallery, and the Institute of Contemporary Art. Now, sitting on Drew's kitchen table were two catalogs missing from the Victoria and Albert Museum National Art Library, still in the museum bag that Drew had used to smuggle them out. There were rubber stamps bearing the authenticating seals of the Tate and of an order of Masonic priest. Receipts for sale of the paintings across continents going back decades. Certificates of authenticity from the estates of Dubuffet and Giacometti. Also, the more mundane instruments of document forgery, scissors, razors, correction fluid, glue tape, that of the such. Now, as soon as police and art experts discovered forging masterpieces, as Mayat had done, was the least of it. Drew's real genius lay in his ability to authenticate Mayotte's works through bogus provenances, the history of a work of art, from its creation through its purchasings and exhibits to its current ownership, a crucial element in the sale of any picture. It would turn out that over the previous 10 years, Drew had systematically infiltrated some of the most security conscious art archives in the world, altering the provenances of genuine paintings to establish a lineage, making way for Mayotte's mostly unexceptional forgeries, and then seeding the collections with false records that provided the pictures with instant heritage. The scale of corruption is unprecedented. Dude was hard at work. It's crazy. He was, and he was really playing the long con. Like, he knew exactly what to do. It's crazy. I've been scared the whole time. <laughs> Couldn't even drink a cup of coffee. They'd be like, V, you behind? Huh? Yeah, I'm not exactly. doing nothing. I'm not forging. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so on edge. With all the lies. How can I keep up? Right, like that's and that's another thing. How did he keep track of all of this? It's it's mind blowing. Now the method is also unprecedented. Archivists may never know how much of their libraries have been compromised. Of the approximate two hundred masterworks Mayat painted and Drew sold, police have only located seventy three. Wow. To now, this day. To this day. Wow. Now, Drew did more than slip phony pictures into a market hungry for important contemporary art. He altered art history. The police called the con the biggest contemporary art fraud of the, 20, the 20th century has seen. The British prosecution office declared Drew a menace to Britain's cultural Petri Petromony. <laughs> I'm sorry, they called him a menace. Oh, he's a menace. Right, like they are just so serious. Like he is a menace. Drew had sold the forgeries to auction houses of Christie's, Phillips, and Sotheby's, and to dealers in London, Paris, and New York. Maya had no idea how many millions had changed hands on account of his paintings. However, the total sum of profits made through Mayotte's forgeries exceeds 25 million pounds. Wow, jeez. Now, he barely, he didn't even get a million of that. He said it was somewhere between 165 and 275,000 pounds that he actually got. And then turned in the last 30000 It Was it even worth it at that point? Maybe so, because he was able to do what he loved and keep his children, you know, not keep his children, but, you know, he's, he quit so he could spend more time with his children. He quit his real job. Yes, so maybe yes. so. I guess that gave him, like, you know, the time and the money to do what he needed to do. Now, during the invest 
interrogation, Drew continuously protested his innocence against all evidence. That's right. You stick to the lie. Like Shaggy said, it wasn't me. That's right. What if she caught you on camera? It wasn't me. Like it, You never admit it. He was released on bail and disappeared. Now, they should have known better. But, <laughs> again, I mean, it's nonviolent. Yes, it, it's a lot of money, but I, I feel like they just felt like, you know, he, he's not violent. He's not out here trying to kill people. So, But two months later, the police found him by following his mother. Aw. Aw, mommy. This time, Drew had concocted a conspiracy theory of a frame-up. He claimed that he was an arms dealer and a fall guy for a conspiracy, including British law enforcement and governments of seven countries, and that there had been a total of 4,000 forgeries that had been used to finance arms deals between the UK arms industry and Iran, Iraq, and Sierra Leone. He also claimed that he was a British intelligence agent and that Mayotte was a neo-Nazi operative and that Robert Harris, a name mentioned in many of the forged certificates, was a South African arms dealer. He could Whoa. not provide any proof of these stories. <laughs> wow. Man, a laundry list of lies right there. Right. Now, if he had intended to scare the police to drop the case, he failed. The prosecution prosecution declared his story pure fantasy and charged him. The trial against Drew and Mayat began in September 1998. Drew fired his lawyer because he refused to use Drew's story as a defense, and Drew decided to defend himself. Again, he failed. Mayat called him a liar to his face, and the jury declared him guilty in six hours. Oh, my gosh. I wonder why it took him so long, like <laughs> six hours. <laughs> I would have been like, okay, as soon as we got in there, okay, he's guilty. I don't, yeah. I don't even, like, really, <laughs> sir, really? Now, on February 13th, 1999, Drew was sentenced to six years for conspiracy to defraud two counts of forgery, one of theft, and one of using a false instrument with intent. He served two years in prison. Then, in March 2012, at Norwich Crown Court, Drew was convicted of defrauding a 71-year-old retired musician teacher or music teacher of her life savings of 700,000 pounds and leaving her penniless. Dang, he needs to chill out with that. Like, what a dick move. What a dick move. Really, a 71-year-old retired art teacher? Or a music teacher? That's uh, not right. Disgusting. Now, he was jailed for eight years by a judge who told him, quote, in my view, you are about the most dishonest and devious person I have ever dealt with. That's right, Judge. You stick it to him. Now, on February 13th of 1999, John Mayotte was also sentenced to one year in prison for conspiracy to defraud. He was released the following June after serving four months of his sentence. After his release, Mayotte continued to paint commission portraits and clear copies and has held exhibitions of his work. His paintings are now marked indelibly as fakes and can be bought from Castle Galleries in the UK. It's reported they have sold for up to 45,000 pounds. Where are the proceeds going to? I, I would think to him because he served his time and he is marking them as fakes. He is selling them as fakes like he did in the beginning when he first started this. Okay, okay. In 2007, it was reported 
that a film was to be made about Mayotte's case written by Dick Clark, uh, Clement and Ian Lafrenet. And with the working title, Genius Fakes. I don't think anything ever came of that, though. He, being Mayotte, now works alongside law enforcement in helping to expose fraudsters. Mayotte also has a television show on Sky Arts called Frame or Fame in the Frame. He has a private sitting with one celebrity each episode and paints a portrait of them in the style of a famous artist. Mayotte has said of his forgeries, when I paint in the style of one of the greats, Monet, Picasso, Van Gogh, I'm not simply creating a copy or a pale imitation of the original. Just as an actor immerses himself into a character, I climb into the minds and lives of each artist. I adopt their techniques and search for inspiration behind each great artist's view of the world. Then and only then do I start to paint a, quote, legitimate fake. That is so wholesome. But did he cut off his ear? Right. Like, did you really, sir? Because we all know the story. I'm asking the hard-hitting questions right now. You really are. You should go into investigative journalism. Huh, how about that? If, if he has two ears, then that was a complete lie. You did not get into their life and immerse yourself because you still have two ears, sir. And it was like Van Gogh, wasn't it? Who cut off one of his ears? Right. Yeah. Vincent Van like, Gogh. Have you ever been that in love to cut off one of your ears for someone? I think not. I think not, too. You are still a menace to this day. No, he's not the menace. Drew was the menace. Oh, my bad. He was the one that cooperated and was like, yep, it's all fake. Here's what I did. <laughs> he, he sang like a canary since he got caught. <laughs> so that was my case. And well, they like really, you know, he kept a lot better records than the Garden House gang. Yeah. So they were able to like really and you know Mayotte was really honest. He told him like I painted 200 forgeries and gave them to him. Right, right. Now, you know, I am um pretty happy to say that these cases were not downers. These cases were quite amusing. They and were. Not, you know, it doesn't make it doesn't make you sad. Right. I mean, nobody got any serious time for what they did Mm -hmm. like you know drew got eight years for being a dick and stealing a a elderly lady's money just insane which he should have gotten that much time but like all the actual forgeries see i mean they didn't even really get that much time no uh -uh. so like the so like the money that they received from all their fake work was you know that's it they just got a little bit of paper, and that's all. And some probably good stories. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I actually didn't say, but my gentleman, Sean Greenhall, he still paints and makes arts and crafts, too. Like, to this mm. day. Well, you know, if if you have the talent, don't let it go to waste. Yeah. Don't, don't, let, don't let getting locked up take you away from Stop. what you love doing. Right. right might as well use it can't stop that shine oh no well um like you said our stories today were like very lighthearted. like you know okay it was forgeries and people getting swindled out of money but you know other than that they they were very light so i'm gonna bring us down right now oh geez (laughs) yeah in light of what's going on in the U.S. with uh, the videoed murder of George Floyd and now, like, all these major cities bursting out into riots and burning down everything, I just want to say, anyone listening, please be careful and stay safe and 
hashtag Black Lives Matter. And I hope that they convict all four of those police officers for murder because I unfortunately watched the video before it like really got viral and I didn't know what it was. So I've like definitely been traumatized by it. I don't ever want to see anything that horrible again. Like talking about it is one thing, but actually sitting there watching someone lose their life in front of your eyes is traumatizing. And I would not wish that on my worst enemy. And I just hope like America will calm itself down, stop burning things to the ground. And hopefully those cops get convicted because it was horrendous what happened. Yeah, absolutely. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. Um, I have not seen the video. I didn't, don't want to watch it. I didn't watch the video where the, um, the young man was uh, shot in the back um, when he was running either. For someone who has like, spent his whole life playing video games, like violent and nonviolent video games, I, I can differentiate pixels from uh, platelets, you know, like real people. Right. They're, like, real people don't need to have their lives taken away from them. They need to live out their life and die natural causes. I'm not a fan of violence, and it always needs to stop. And the right procedures need to be done to put the people at fault, you know, like out of civilization. It's been a rough few days. However, hopefully this will come to an end and, you know, again, don't watch any of these. Like, I don't watch these videos. I don't repost them. Like, people have sent me videos to my inbox and was like repost this and let's make it go viral and I didn't even like play the video I could see it was something I didn't want to watch and I don't want to traumatize anybody else so with that being said let's bring it back up okay (laughs) sorry I had to bring it down everybody but this is like extremely serious what's going on and we'd be remiss to not at least mention it and you know, give it the attention that it needs to get. Now, people who are not in the U.S. that listen, you know, Google George Floyd, and you'll see, don't watch any videos, but you'll see what we're talking about and how devastating it is, like the climate here in the U.S. is currently. But on a happier note, I want to shout out, I may have shouted her out before, but if I have, she's getting another shout out. And if not, shout out to Melissa. She works with me and she is always hyping us up, telling me that she listens and that it's great and that she's entertained. So I appreciate her. We, you know, talk about other true crime stuff when we have like spare moments here and there to chat with each other. So thanks for being a listener, Melissa, and we appreciate you. Thank you so much, Melissa. We do appreciate you. So, what about you? Well, I would like to shout out my friends. It's just a various various conglomerate of nice people who do support and listen to our show and are always hey, happy friends. to hear me mispronounce and uh, misspeak. So, <laughs> my, well, shout pain, out to those, my pain is there. Pleasure. Guys. And also, huge shout out to V for getting the YouTube up and running. I don't think we announced that on the last episode. But for those of you who are into the podcast and know somebody else who may like it, but maybe you're not as tech savvy as to how to get the podcast going on a podcast player, now you can just direct them to YouTube. We shouldn't talk about this podcast is the name. And it just plays our episode. Every episode. So, subscribe. Have your friends subscribe. Give us a five-star rating on Apple iTunes if you have an iPhone or iPod or iPad. Give us some ratings. Also, And and check out the new format of Good Pods. Yes, that's exactly what I was about to say. Good Pods, you can also check us out on there and give us ratings. 
yeah, and also chat with and chat with me, B, because I am on there actively and speaking about some of the cases on our show and talking to other podcast hosts as well. Awesome. Seeing as how I'm team Android, I cannot get on there. However, I do mostly run the Twitter, WStat underscore pod, the Instagram, WStat underscore pod, and I am the main moderator slash admin for the We Shouldn't Talk About This group, although V does pop his head in and out every now and then. Yeah, so yeah, so like you, you're so like you're the you're the social media like marketing person, Pretty and I'm much. the and I'm the producer of our stuff, and then like the good pods, like Howdy, I'm V. It's me, Not your boy. Howdy. <laughs> <laughs> it's only three only three things I like: key, rooting, tooting, and shooting. All right now. Howdy. Howdy, indeed. Just kidding, everyone. I don't like rooting or tooting or shooting. Well, I don't know what family you came from, because we are a family of shooters. Well, no, not your mom. Never mind. I guess you get that from her. My mom doesn't really like anything. Well, she likes some stuff. Yeah, she likes some stuff. She used to be a great, well, not used to be. She probably still is if she had the time to do it, but she was a great artist. And... To go along with our forgeries, let's say back when I was in elementary and part of middle school and I had to do book reports, I would enlist your mother to draw me a picture on poster board and pass it off as my book report picture. No way. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, the two most notable ones that I can remember is that she drew like a huge... um, a stoplight because I did a, um, a black history report on the uh, the black man who invented the stoplight mm-hmm. and so she drew like a huge stoplight on a poster board for me and then it was one and this is the stone cold truth I did not even read the whole book but her picture was so good it got me an A that's crazy and it was like it was like a black panther like jumping up out the grass and like swatting at a butterfly maybe i don't even remember what the book was about i remember i didn't read the whole book but when my teacher saw that poster of this like huge like black cat jumping out the grass she was like oh this is marvelous so shout out to your mom's art skills she probably could have been a forger if she put her mind to it probably could have yeah and, you know, your brother, Ro, who has been our live studio audience and has also given us last week's absolutely, f- well, not fun, but, you know, good no. topic. Good topic. Is also very artsy. Yes. So, he you know, that, uh, that talent is running through the bloodline. Let's uh, keep it going, you guys. Maybe we could start an art ring. Maybe, just maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, we just announced it on the podcast, so it wouldn't be smart if we did. <laughs> right. Anyway, well, with that, I feel a lot better now. Back up. You know, yeah, we are too. going to get us a shed. Oh, wait, there's already a shed in your backyard. We could use that for your mom and brother to start their art forgeries. And I think this is going to be a very lucrative business we're going into. The Garden Shed Gang U.S. Branch. Part D. Kind of crazy, unexpected that both our stories were about United Kingdom forgers. I feel like because they're kind of more artsy just in general. You think so? I don't know. I think, you know, we just... Americans just have this kind of stereotypical view of British people, like because of their accent, like we just kind of think of them as more like classy and artsy and hoity-toity maybe. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm following. 
so maybe that's where I'm getting that from but we shall see hopefully our uh, art ring is just as lucrative but not as badly ending right right we have we have minimized the lies yes and also burn all records yeah don't put them in the archives do not so be on the lookout for our art forgeries coming to a gallery near you and with that being said i'm key and i'm v and this has been we shouldn't talk about this thanks for listening bye